Hello, welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm Andy Clef, and my co-host today, Mark Story, Enterprise Coach at Agile Velocity. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Joining us as we explore the topic of adaptive and effective leadership is Ryan Sparks. Ryan is Chief Information Officer at an org that builds new homes for families across America. And in his CIO role, he manages the usual strategy, development, implementation, and usability of the company's technology and data ecosystems. Before this business career, Ryan, you commanded Marines for 16 years. You also serve on the, the board of directors for the Headstrong Project and the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. I'd love to hear about that at the end of the show. So Ryan, thanks for, thanks for joining us and, and thank you for your service. Yeah, thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, spend time with uh, you and Mark this afternoon. We did a little pre-gaming, and there's uh, so many entry points to our conversation, and I'm curious, where is the best place to drop in? Yeah, what a great question. I was talking to a team last night, one of um, our software platforms, and they were asking me something similar. And, uh, you know, it, it's occurred to me over the last eight or 10 years as I've been doing this, how similar human organizations work as opposed to how different they are. And I, I really think that this is going to be an interesting conversation. The similarities between the leadership experience that I had in the Marine Corps and what was really effective under times of duress, especially in a chaotic environment, how that translates to the corporate world, but especially to uh, an agile operating model and how to do and build great software products, um, bringing together cross-functional teams and all of those, all of those pieces. Like it's just really fascinating how similar it is. I would agree with I would agree with you there, Ryan. That's uh, my experience when I when I got out of the Marine Corps and I stumbled into software development. I can't claim that I did it on purpose, but uh, a lot of the small small unit stuff and the way we thought about things um, as infantry Marines made a lot of sense to me when it was applied to the business and software world. What do you both see as patterns that similarity? scale, communication networks, decision-making between, you know, a, a military-style operation, which I have zero experience in other than movies, and software or creative knowledge work. Yeah, there's so many different pieces that we can dive into. I think the most essential piece, though, is putting together a team and having them just focus on the next most important action and nothing else. And, and so when you're when you're training a small unit, when you're kind of doing something in the military, no matter what it is, it could be something small and simple, a routine maintenance task. It could be the most dynamic environment at a big level. But understanding that there's a group of people, that the outcome is more important than the titles, that you're focusing on people, like all the agile manifesto principles, right? You can read them off. It could be a, it could be a kind of military doctrine. But all of those things, focusing on the next best action with the people that you have, employing the skills that you have as a team, really, that's what it comes down to. And then in that decision-making process, taking in the environment and the space that you're in and looking at, okay, now that we're there, what's the next best action? And the next, next best action, continuing to iterate on that and continue to move forward. It's, um, it was probably like five years into my journey um, that people were talking about doing an agile transformation. And I literally in a meeting was, I, I just stopped the meeting. I'm like, can, can you guys stop and explain to me what's the other way? Like, I don't, because I'd always been in the environment. I, like, what are we transitioning from? Can somebody explain that to me? I, I don't understand what you're talking about, because to me, it just seems like this is naturally how humans work um, and how effective teams work. So it, it, the similarities are, are pretty widespread. I imagine it wasn't always that way. 
So we often talk about Manager 1.0, Henry Ford, the assembly line. Right. And, and there's got to be an equivalent in military history. And I, I'm imagining, you know, the old movies of two armies on the opposite side of the fields. Charge! Sure. It, they were just fungible resources with either clubs, sticks, swords, or eventually weapons. Right. And, and so that emerged. So I'm imagining there was a similar change in military doctrine that we saw in the world of work that went from it's not an assembly line, it's a system. And now, you know, management 2.0, Deming, I don't know right. what the, the corresponding in, is in military. And then management 3.0, where, the, yes, there's managers, but they're, they're leaders that, that give here's the intent you get, you know, the, the people doing the work are the closest to, well, what is the next best action with some constraints? I think it's really interesting. Um, and I won't get too theoretical. Mark will remind me I'm a Marine and like, we're just supposed to break things um, in a little bit, but there's, there's at least four generations of war. Um, and it started off as the way that you described, just very much line up it's attrition it's a math game um and then it kind of moves into a little bit more complex and finally you get to a third generation warfare which is what i'm describing it's this small teams commander's intent understanding the center of gravity like massing effects instead of massing forces and those kind of concepts that i used all the military lingo but if you apply them in a corporate sense it's very much kind of how we think about things in terms of agile development and then there's a fourth generation and maybe even emerging kind of a fifth generation which is starting to get to some of the concepts that McChrystal was talking about in his book team of teams and some of the things that we see emerging in um, cloud computing and some of those architectures and then new, new development styles around them where it goes from a leader actively making decisions and kind of a more traditional kanban style it's the next most important action that we can do to a style where you set the conditions and out of principles, those independent nodes can make decisions on their own, right? And it's kind of more like swarm tactics or how you see modern DevOps practices or cloud architectures replicating, like all of those things that's happening in information and that's happening kind of in, in how people think about engaging forces um, on the battlefield. So absolutely these generations have existed. And it was, you know, I mean, it was very much Napoleonic times, like line up, nobody did anything until a general said so. The flag goes up, the flag goes down, you plan everything out in a perfect waterfall, and eventually you kind of, you know, you end up in Berlin or Paris or wherever you're going. Um, it's simple, but that's, you know, it's not the way that it works. Um, and uh, World War II is really when that kind of changed. The Germans showed us through Blitzkrieg that that's, there's faster ways to do things. And I, I would expect from, from, from my observation of this and kind of look, thinking about the the parallels between the the way war has evolved along with the way industry has evolved and and the one clear pattern is that there are there are major shifts in the way people think about both of them but the now the rapidity with which those shifts are occurring is accelerating dramatically and so you know it, it may have taken you know, 200 years to go or 100 years to, from the idea of going from, hey, we're going to line up with muskets and shoot each other to now we don't even know who the hell the enemy is, is, is that sort of evolution is taking place in technology. I mean, the internet started it and now everyone's got a supercomputer in their hand and there's no reason to think that that's going to slow down. So that need for um, continuously 
adaptive systems that are decentralized is, is not going away. It's going to accelerate. Mark, you bring up a really important point too. Each one of those steps that I described was brought on by a technological revolution. <clears throat> and so you kind of go from spears, bows, and arrows to firearms is kind of, and cannon is the first kind of move. And then you go from that to something like the machine gun as a second move, right? Um, and so all of a sudden, you see these things emerge. You have attrition, and then you get to kind of trench warfare where there's artillery, and then you get to machine guns where like you can't, the one person can take on thousands. And now we have information, right, that can be moved around. And it's and, and like those things have kind of ushered in these different, these different needs for different tactics. Um, and the same thing is happening here, right? I mean, I'd already mentioned cloud computing and what that does. Um, the power of kind of the end compute system, what an individual can do with kind of a PC versus what we could do 10 years ago at the mainframe. Like you had to have waterfall because somebody had to line up, make the cards, stick them in so that, you know, the jobs could get done. You had to plan to get that done on in a specific order, right? You couldn't do it any other way. Yeah, the te technology was was so right. different. I, I remember punch cards. So with, with the speed in, in both of these arenas, creative knowledge work or military action, there is this move that the people closest to the issue are the ones making most of the decisions. How do we ensure at scale really meaningful communications, high fidelity communication, high fidelity knowledge transfer? Because take, let's stick with, um, you know, high speed computing, right? And AI, and suddenly the monster's loose. Right. And so I'm curious, you know, the, the feedback loops that help us win or lose in wherever we're fighting, what do they look like at scale within a unit, within a team, teams of teams? How does that operate? And the other, and the other kind of conversation we had, we were talking about the OODA loop. Um, and that's, that's really kind of those four steps, which mean uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. The key is to distill out the signal from the noise at each one of those steps. And so when you're observing, like how do you, how do you really take in and make sure that it's an objective observation of the environment that you're in and you, that you're getting all of that information in, in a relevant place and in a way that it's digestible. Currently, you know, the, the organization that I work with, we, we're leaning into this world of kind of information and we've, we're, we're through an enterprise data warehouse and we have access to all this. We can start to build our own dashboards. And so now we're at dashboard overload hundreds of dashboards. And they're not what I would consider dashboards. They've got 150 data elements on them. So you can't, or you can't observe that. It's too much information, right. you know? And, and so like, like, so we're working through right now, like how do you distill it out and get the, uh, the relevant information to that person? And then the second thing, and I think it's an important part of that, Andy, is how do you orient yourself in that information? Because where you exist in that environment is just as important as understanding the environment itself. <clears throat> and so I've worked for a lot of, of large corporations. Every single one of them says that they want to innovate like a startup, but use the leverage that they have as kind of a large business. Well, you can't innovate like a startup. You have SOX compliant issues. You have regulatory issues. You have shareholders. You have people that have worked there for 30 years. You just can't do it that way. How do you how do you maintain pace or outpace a startup is really the better question. Orient yourself to the environment. Don't just observe and make a decision without understanding where you exist. And then the second two stop, the second two pieces are where 
A lot of organizations fall down. They might be good at the first two steps, but then somebody's got to decide. And, and I think that what we were just talking about, the big difference in those generations of warfare and agile versus waterfall, it's putting the decision maker as close to the problem as possible. And so you kind of you talk about flat organizations and taking out the stratification, getting somebody with decision rights based on principles as close as possible. And when you do that, it automatically speeds up the ability to act. And so that's really kind of the key. So how do you do that? I mean, I think it's, um, you've just got to keep iterating on it faster and faster. That's why it's a loop. Like we tried it once, can we get faster? Can we get better information? Can we distill it down? And in this world where we've got kind of algorithmic things feeding us, you have to constantly go back and do the retrospectives to make sure that you're doing that observation point again. You're just not orient, decide, act, orient, decide, act. You have to go back and make sure you're pulling in all the information objectively. So yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of academia kind of speak there, but that's that's how I think about it. Yeah. So that's th thanks for that, Ryan. One of the things that I always, always think about, and, and particularly in the corporate world, because it, I, I feel like it is not um, emphasized enough. But you know, if you're going to push decision making out to the people who are close to the problem, I think that that puts a a a different version or a different burden on leadership. Um, particularly around commander's intent, that that to me there's there that that managers and corporations who are and I think there's part of that shift from management to leadership that really needs to be embraced, but they've got to be super clear about what their intended outcome is, and there's that separation between I'm going to tell you what the outcome is versus I'm going to tell you how to reach that outcome. Well, what are, what are your thoughts on on the responsibilities of, of management to provide strong leadership in that area i mean really i think that that's like why i'm successful uh because the way that i approach it is very much you know, i'm gonna like just read them off the list here it's just based on marine corps leadership principles and it's not like it's not about being right or like holding people accountable it's more about how do you make them better and then look at the law of averages like are they making better decisions over time like are, are they guided by principles and are you allowing kind of a learning organization to emerge? And so, you know, are, you, are they seeking self-improvement? Are they proficient in their jobs? Are you constantly training them? Like, are you looking out for their welfare, setting the example for them in your own space, keeping them informed? I mean, like making sure they're resourced, that it can be uh, accomplished. Like all of those things, those kind of Marine Corps leadership principles is really how I approach the organization. And so... It's, it's showing up to every meeting. Um, you know, I just had, before we, we jumped on this call, I was having, uh, you know, kind of my date, my weekly one-on-one -on -one with one of my um, direct reports. And I start everyone the same way, like, how was your week? And, you know, what can I do to help you? And that's, that needs to be the approach, not, not give me an accounting of all the things that you accomplished. Like, I'm a resource here for you. Tell me what you need from me and why, you know, why you're slowing down or what blockages you have. And like, as a leader, that's really it. And then, you know, constant feedback, like again, that same feedback loop, making sure that they understand if they're succeeding, where they're falling short, are they on the right cardinal direction? How do they fit into the bigger picture? All of those pieces. But um, there's, there's one thing that's really important in there. Again, it's a Marine Corps leadership principle. Those people that are down there at the action level need to feel a sense of responsibility for the outcome themselves. And, you know, I've used all these kind of anecdotal quips, but the one that I love telling my team is that, you know, the reason that I give you the, the ability to make decisions is not because necessarily I trust you, it's because it lowers risk. 
people that climb mountains without ropes take, take less risks than the ones that do, right? I mean, it's just kind of like when you're responsible for your own outcomes and you own that end to end, you do the right thing for yourself and for your business when you think about it. So my problem most of the time is to get, keep them moving forward and like, nope, it's your decision. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like do what's best for the business using the principles, uh, but you own, you have the responsibility, so. It's great when you start that way and you don't have to transition from a team that's expecting you to tell them what to do. So that's really powerful that you bring that right to the table. A thought came up when you were talking about OODA loop and observing and orienting and deciding. As humans, uh, we, we, we talked about patterns and we want to dive deep into that. We've got 50,000 years of repeat practice in cognitive biases that impact our ability to orient and observe. Right. As a leader, how do you help people not fall victim to their own bias? Confirmation bias, recently bias, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a military situation, there's literally life and death at stake. And so <laughs> maybe those biases serve you well, but in a business situation, what have you found as, as working models? It's, um. Yeah, that's a constant, uh, a constant fight. And I think not just with engineering teams and product teams, but also certainly with business owners that a day doesn't go by that somebody doesn't look at one of our dashboards and says, well, that's not what it feels like. Like, well, that's great. I didn't, you know, um, I didn't know that that's necessarily like super relevant, but it is right. Cause these people are out there making decisions. I think it's important to have both the qualitative and quantitative and ask people be able to ask and reframe like why is it that you that you have that perspective not call out that it's a bias but why do you think that's best right and and show them the data and be objective about it on the other side um but i think the way through it is just to have the conversation continuously and 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 highlight to people without not trying to play to get you because your data might be wrong too you might have have a complete data set you know any machine learning algorithms only as good as this it's training and the, the, the data model that it's pulling from and that set of data. So, you know, that's, that's also part of the, the beauty of kind of the human brain is it's pulling together all of these disparate data sources that you may not have ready access to or understand that that's where you're pulling from. And so it's important conversation to understand the bias and where it comes from, but also use it to challenge the data set to make them better back and forth. So it, again, Andy, I don't know, Mark, if you've got thoughts on it, my, my way through it is just to continuously have the conversation. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with the idea of having continuous conversations uh, around things like this. Uh, I I frequently kind of fall back to being a six year old um, when it comes to dealing with these things and just repeatedly asking the question why why do you why do you think that why do you think it has to be that way why can't we do it a different way and 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 frequently people can can eventually unpack uh, some of their biases and and just some of their and I think a lot of people. Two, you have to deal with the idea that that people got to a certain place by behaving a certain way. And so when you when you deal with them and you say, hey, look, all these things that made you successful, I'm now going to question some of the some of kind of your core beliefs about what made you successful. That that's a tough thing. So it's, you know, I, I can't sit down with Ryan in one day and or in one hour or 15 minutes and suggest to him in any meaningful way that he should change the way he does any part of his day. So it, it's definitely not a one minute or a one month or necessarily even a one year thing. It is a 
a long and continuous conversation about those things. Innovation is not easy. No, absolutely. Mark, I think it, it goes back to kind of what I said on the OODA loop piece. Like those, both of the first two steps in that process are critical. Like the observation based on the best data set that's available right then. And it's not the data set that you had previously. It's whatever is current. And then you orient yourself inside of that. And so a lot of people, they observe once and then, then the cycle just becomes orient, decide, act, orient, decide, act, or just decide, act, decide, act, right? They, they don't go back and say, okay, there's a new set of information. The weather's different. The situation's different. The market's different, whatever it is, like that being the new set of circumstances in the environment. Now, where do I sit? My market position's changed. A new entrance come in. Like there's, there's things have changed and where you sit in that data set changes. So critical just to continue. You got to go back to the beginning of that process to do it, to do it the right way. We have stressors on all of us. Organizations at scale, particularly publicly held, have that quarterly earnings call. How does that impact this OODA loop, right? What you see, <laughs> that, that constant pressure, earnings per share. That's it. Some succeed and some don't. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's, it's important to, you know, I, I use kind of the... Um, the basic three horizon model and, and having kind of appropriate distribution of resources on what can I do in the next sprint, the next PI, the next quarter to keep the ball moving forward, to keep the company evolving, to solve the problems they have today while doing things that might be a year out. They're going to maybe be a slight step function versus kind of transformational efforts. And you have to invest all three of those. Because eventually, you know, just like driving towards the horizon, you get closer to one and they become the next thing, right? They become the tactical need. And so if you don't lay that groundwork, you're not going to be able to do it in the long term. If you don't deliver in the short term, you're not going to be employed very long. <laughs> because again, there's that quarterly earnings call and the business is going to keep moving. So that's a constant, constant effort. And I think some of the practices um, Mark and I have been talking about a lot um, recently are really to help our organization do just that. Stay balanced on all three horizons. Keep that perspective um, because, you know, it takes pretty bold leadership. I mean, there's a couple of examples out there. Netflix is one that's top of mind mm. for a company to stop and say, this is we're we're doing this today. Um, but in order to get to that next horizon, like we've got to totally change what we're doing. It's, there's a lot of courage involved in that. And that's going to be a, a really you know, powerful executive decision based on the strategy. In, in that Netflix model, where was it? Was it that we're shipping DVDs? Uh, we got to get out of the shipping DVD business. How the hell are we going to do this? Oh, we got to invent a whole new technology? Right. Never thought about it that way. No, I, I, they, they've got to invent a whole new technology. I would say, though, that if you look at that company, in my mind, I mean, they're called Netflix, right? Netflix does, they're not DVD flicks. They're not mail flicks. They're called Netflix. That was their name from the beginning. It seems to me like as if they always had the long-term vision and, and the short term was how do we make money until it's real, until the, until the ecosystem can support us. So there's also really interesting cases like that. Like we're building for the future. Like how do we, main, how do we aim for this horizon, but maintain enough maintain contact, maintain parity with the market in the meantime until the rest of the ecosystem catches up. Some of the things that are happening in our own industry around, you know, we're a home builder and there, there's a lot of things going on that haven't totally implemented across the entire market in terms of buying a home. You know, there's 
there's still very much a traditional you get a realtor, you drive around, you look at homes, like that's how you do things versus Amazon and the shopping experience there. Those, those are very different, right? And so we're getting ready for a digital revolution in home and home buying and in our end in the rest of the industry. But in the meantime, we've got to maintain contact with the market because we've got, we've got to deliver uh, quarter over quarter. Yeah, Ryan, I thought, I think your comment about it requiring courage is, is, uh, particularly true because the stock market, the reality is the stock market does not reward long-term thinking. It rewards cost cutting and it record and it rewards right now versus that you're going in the right direction. So I think it does, it both requires a lot of courage and, and significant perseverance to do in particular what, what Netflix did. And I, I think they may not have even intended to make money when they started. I think their whole game might have been grabbing market share so that because they knew they were eventually going to shift their model and then they were going to make a lot of money. Maybe. The, the counter example of that was Blockbuster, who was making tons of money, hands over fist on late fees. And, and it would be interesting um, to look at their stock history when it finally plummeted um, because they clearly they, they missed the disruptor. Are we going to buy our next home on our mobile device, just like we're buying a car now? Order it. You can. You you can today if you if you have the courage enough, Andy. <laughs> it's possible. So we opened up with the topic of similarity of human organizations, hmm. scale, patterns, communication. Let's let's jump into that one more topic before we wrap up. In prep for the show, we were talking about Dunbar's number. You know whether you believe it's true or not, it's it's out there, and there's this scale of team sizes and networks. How does that apply in your organization? How does it um, mirror what was in your military careers? So, I mean, the, the military is very much based on kind of those those natural groupings, team size being somewhere between three and five. You know, kind of that small you know, hypernuclear family. And then you kind of roll that up to a squad or a platoon, you know, you get up to 12 to 14 and then, you know, about 40 to 50 in a platoon size starting to represent kind of, you know, what a large extended family or a tribe would look like. And then certainly, you know, an infantry company is right at about 150 to 200 people. So it's, it's right there at the threshold. And what's interesting, you know, Mark and I are both like sporting our unit t-shirts the pride of having these logos is alive and well and how those cultures develop. And again, kind of that tribal clan level, you know, it's, it might be four or five of those, of those families of 200 people come together to form a battalion, kind of the largest collective culture that you can have. And I think, look, the way that I've always kind of led teams is to go, is to understand and training leaders at each one of those levels based on what's required to be successful at those levels. So you go from a place where to be a team leader, it's about personal power and very much kind of, do you have the moral courage every day to come in and set the example and do the right thing? Because people are watching you all the time. And that probably goes up to that squad level of 14 people. It's really about being, you know, my current vernacular, the lead developer, right? Like, like I'm going to come in, we're going to do paired programming. I'm going to show you how to do it. Mimic me. It's a craftsman model. Like maybe you have a couple procedures but it's a crew, right? It's like, same thing happens in everywhere. You know, it, it's replicated everywhere. Like uh, and, uh, an EMT crew, right? The driver, the EMT, like that's that crew size. You have a really high performing team. 
And those are the people that should be pulling those things down and doing them collective tasks. Then you get a group, you know, um, about the same size as, you know, a couple scrum teams that are together and say, okay, together we can kind of maintain parity um, in terms of our understanding of the world, like day-to-day. -day. We have a kind of perfect lateral communication. And there you have somebody that still relies on personal power, but they've probably got a few daily ceremonies and there's a, there's a process in place. That team, you don't necessarily need a process, although it makes you better. At the, at the bigger level, you need a bit of a process. We've got checklists. This is how we do things every day. There's a routine to it. People can feel familiar every day they show up in the environment looks like it. The next level up, that platoon level, you're getting to kind of the edge of, not all the way there, but you're getting to the edge of what you can do um, without, without principle. You can just run a platoon based on process and kind of personal power. And then a company is the, the largest, that Dunbar's number, right? That tribal number is the, is the largest place where you can lead purely based on personal relationships and, 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 and calls of kind of um, like personal trust. Because 200 people, Dunbar's number is about the number of people that you can maintain in your daily life and know well, right? Like that's kind of the bounds of, of the human condition. Beyond that, and I think one of the things that's really cool about different agile frameworks, and you know, I've been studying using and implementing SAFE a lot recently, is beyond that, you need principles and process more than you need personal power, right? The, the, the operating model becomes how the organization runs. And you might have a culture around it, and you've got shared artifacts and those symbols, but those things become more powerful than the leaders themselves. And you have to start rallying around those things. So that's how I kind of think about the similarities between the two places. And so mm -hmm. when you go from being that place, we have about 200 people. It's a fun place to be, right? You're the, you're, you, kind of, you're, you get to be the tribal elder, the chief, so to speak. You go to the next level and you're managing managers. You're really, you're really setting process in place. And, and your, your job is to manage the process um, as opposed to the actual work. And, and then beyond that, you get up to larger organizations. From there, in my mind, it's about principles and setting standards and kind of more rule-based things in place. So at that scale, when you're, when you're the, beyond the Dunbar's number, right? You're, you're, you're running a legion. How much understanding does one need of what's happening to make effective consultation or, or process policy decisions? That's, that's where it's, it begins to struggle in my mind, where there's this tension, right? You're setting policies and constraints, but you really aren't that connected to what's happening at the team or the squad. How does that work? It's a great question. And I think it depends on where you are and exactly what's going on um, and how critical that specific piece is. In the military recently, we've talked a lot about kind of the compression of the levels of warfare. That's like tactical level, operational level, strategic level. The compression being like, the, like now that you can have like these tactical decisions that have strategic impact. The goal is to understand when those are coming. And so you go back to that OODA loop I was talking about, like how do you get better information in all of those granular details at the tactical level? How do you pull those into what you're seeing every day? And, and have great exception reporting so you can see outliers starting to emerge. And so the process that you're putting in place to manage your organization is really about, I see what's going on. I see how everything's running. What are the kind of the, the, the upper and lower bounds of my controls? So when something breaks one of those controls, there's an outlier, you know, and 
in our engineering teams, right? Like um, there's a velocity outlier, good or bad, or there's a bunch of kind of spike sprints, or there's some sort of refactoring that's required, like what's actually going on and being able to go back and interrogate that and not just let that churn happen because that's generally what's going on. And so that gives you the ability to dive deep into that tactical situation, help the people in there and out that are, that are developing in that space and then come back up and look at the, at the whole piece. I think the other thing that um, I've struggled with a little bit in kind of our modern, um, you know, Teams, Zoom, Google Meet environment is the leadership by walking around principle and just kind of being out on the floor. The, you know, the agile principle, go see. Like, it's hard to just go out and see, to just to sit and, and watch developers code and just go stop by and see what they're working on. Um, and so you've got to be really disciplined about demos and retros so that you have the ability to go down and do that stuff. Because you want to do that at random times, random places. Yeah. So, how is it's it's hard to take that gimbal walk right now? Yeah. It's hard to sit in the team space and just feel what's going on. That's right. How have you addressed that in the last twelve to eighteen months? What are the experiments you've tried? Yeah, popping it out of Slack, Teams channels. I'll drop into just a normal Scrum meeting you know, here and there and just kind of watch it, what's going on. Um, I spend a lot of time with my leaders and just in conversation and just let them without an agenda, just what's on your plate, what's going on this week? What are you concerned about? You know, kind of what are your hopes and dreams and like, what's, what are the problems? Are you excited about the next six months? Let's have these really open-ended conversations. Because if you, if, if you go back to what Mark said, just keep asking why, like, especially when somebody's, somebody feels really good and I'm super excited about something. Why do you feel that way? Well, I'm excited about this new platform. Why is that? I've got a great relationship with this business owner as the product owner. We're coming together. We had a really cool POC. Like you could find that. Or, you know, like we're down in the weeds again. We had another sev one, like whatever's going on, like what's going on with that and understand where there's resource constraints and a bunch of different things. So that's, that's kind of what I've been using. It sounds like you have an existing open, trusting, and safe network, hmm. right? Where you can ask, hey, what's going on? And someone can say, shit blew up last week without feeling like, oh, I can't tell Ryan this because he's going to bite my head off. Did you always have that? No, it's the first thing that I built when I got here. What was it like when you landed? What Was it present? No. How did you change that? It was my first agenda item on as a leader um, for me personally. Um, you know, I'm kind of a student of the subject. My wife's a clinical social worker, so I've got her stack of books along with my leadership books uh, right next to each other. And so first thing I did is like, and I was overt about it. I said, look, uh, my job here is to protect all of you, to create a safe space, a vulnerable environment so you can deliver. You can dare to be excellent and dare to take risks um, and we'll do it together. But my job is to provide that umbrella. Here's a book, Speed of Trust. We're going to read this. Here's a book, The One Thing. This is how I want you to block your time. Here's a book. And we just did these book studies together as a team. And then I had to actually show up and do that. I had to show up when one of our regional vice presidents or somebody else was hammering my team. Show up and be like, whoa, 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 wait. Like, like, you're talking to me. Like, let them go do their thing. And we're not going to do that. And here's five reasons why. And tell me what it is you're trying to accomplish. And instead of dictating a solution to do all of those things and show them how to lean into it. But no, it's, uh, it's something you got to maintain all the time. Hey, Ryan, one thing I wanted to go back to when we're making comparisons between military organization and, and 
civilian is is the kind of cross functionality. Like you can look at a oh yeah a, a Marine Corps certainly at the fire team, the squad, the platoon level. Everybody's got the same set of skills. It changes a little bit at the company level because they can get a, a, a weapons co- a company or a weapons platoonist attached to it. But it's that same idea where you've got a you've got a group of people who can do the same job that they you can you don't have to go through and reassemble eight Marines to do one thing. You can take any eight Marines and they can already do that job. So how do you how are you kind of addressing that uh, with with your teams now and kind of drilling out that specialization and, and bringing in those T or M shaped uh, people? It's a great question, Mark. I think that that's been one of the biggest changes that I've tried to bring to the organization um, is to get people out of their siloed um, kind of, we had these groupings of specialization and work would kind of move from one silo to the next, right? It's going to go from the business intelligence team and the data engineers to some app developers. And it, and, you know, I mean, none of the stuff ever fit. It didn't make sense. And it was a basic principle. I said, look, the first thing we're going to do is identify the work to be done. Mm-hmm. Like that's the number one job. What is it that we're trying to do in business terms? Like describe to me the business outcome. And then we're going to organize the people around the work instead of the work around the people. Our vernacular, come to build some scrum teams, right? Put them like, here's your backlog. Here's some release trains. Like go build that stuff. And then where there were gaps, I would encourage that team to collectively get the set of skills. So here, everybody gets a free Udemy license, go figure it out. Um, if you don't have the skills, you're still accountable for the outcome. And then over time, they build those certifications and those team members teach each other. I mean, even, you know, Mark, in your example, right, you get down to a fire team level, you still got the guy that's carrying a saw and somebody's carrying a rifle and you got the point, man, and they're teaching each other all of the time by virtue of being in that crew, right? You know, I might go down, you got to pick this up, I'm the cross train you. And so they teach each other throughout the day. And so when you build those scrum teams, that's kind of naturally occurs. People get... They understand, you know, learn a little bit about a new language or a new pattern or about DevOps or whatever by just being part of that team and seeing it in action and being responsible for the outcome. One of the things that I found that's been really powerful is just it's kind of a personal confirmation bias that I broke for myself. It's really incredible what you can accomplish if nobody tells you and you don't ask whether or not you're qualified. Marine units get all kinds of ridiculous tasks, something like You've got six weeks to reestablish commerce in the bazaar of this city. Um, okay, like, you know, I know how to carry a rifle around. I don't know how to do that. We're not built for that. that yeah, so, but that nobody cared. Like, go figure it out. And so it's kind of the same thing that I do to my teams. Like, I know that they're, they, they're roughly qualified and they can figure it out. But like, here, here it is. Here's, you know, uh, an AWS instance or Azure or whatever we're building on. Like, here's a set of tools. There's a set of knowledge. Go figure it out. Yeah, two weeks. I'll come see your demo. Yeah, and that was always, uh, always for us. You know, we'd always get those crazy tasks, and I think I think most people use it as a joke, but it's real. Adapt and overcome. That's you know, that's the the Marine Corps way. But once again, you've created an environment where there are all the necessary conditions. Slack time, right? Not one hundred percent productive, eight hours a day, five days a week safety to fail with learning yep and and it sounds like all you did was put in the constraint of the time box show me something that works yeah go to it and we'll leave you alone 
in these two weeks, not throw five more things on your plate to do. Right. I, I imagine it wasn't always that way in the, in the world you inherited. No, and we still struggle with some of those things. Um, it's a real hard thing for my team to do because of the culture of our organization, that they want to be super helpful for all of the rest of the associates. And they're there to, excuse me, they're there to serve the entire team. So when I'm telling that these engineers, like, no, you're not allowed to pick up your phone during the middle of the day. Like, unless it's the product owner, your scrum master, or somebody else on that team calling you, like, you've got nobody else to talk to. You're not answering questions. You're not, you're not putting something in the queue, like work and, and boxing that out. And so, like, let's be realistic at first. Let's call that, you're going to do that during two two-hour blocks. Find two two-hour blocks in your day that that's true. And then you've got the rest of the day to schedule meetings and communication and one-on-ones or whatever, pick up the phone, respond to emails. But that even that just blows their mind. But again, it's a place that I had to lead by example. First thing I told my team um, when I came in is like, look, if you need me, you need to call my phone. It's like, I don't respond to all my emails. And they're just like, what? Like that, my inbox is somebody else's list of stuff for, to do, for me to do. That's not my list of stuff to do. Like if I get to it, I get to it. If I'm not, I don't. It's not my, that's not my backlog. That's an input to my to get a hold of me and send me information. But if you need me, you need to call my phone or you need to shoot me a note on Teams. I'll respond to those. Don't send me an email and expect a timely response. I'll get to it when I get to it. That, like, that was revolutionary. And what's really hard for them is I'm like, and that's also now your rule. So if I need you, I'll call you. If I email you, it's an FYI. Um, but if the list of stuff that I want for you and your team to do will be in Jira. That's what we're going to put it there collectively by Grim in the backlog. And that is the only thing we should be doing, you know, and mentoring and all that other stuff, but that's it. And so it's like, there's some basic rules that are really easy to say, super hard to do. And so putting those in place for my team was, uh, you know, again, the communication and that, like, what's the environment, what's the culture. That was something that we spent a lot of time with up front. Yeah. So I think Andy, are we at the, pretty much at the end here? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ryan, before we talk about your, uh, your social efforts. So I just wanted to share a little anecdote from your team um, with you as I was having a conversation with somebody who's in a team leadership role who coincidentally just got out of the military. And, and you probably would be able to figure out who I'm talking about. But we, we were talking about some, some different things and practices, what's going on with the team. But he, he basically admitted to me that he didn't know what waterfall was. And that he was looking at Agile and just questioning why in the hell would we do anything else? Because this waterfall thing doesn't make any sense. So I literally spent like 20 minutes just explaining to him what I think is, is a ludicrous way of addressing things. So he would at least have that, oh, now I know what they're talking about kind of thing. <laughs> the youngins, right, Mark? The youngins, they don't know how good they have. Oh, he's the, I, I have uh, high expectations for that, I'll tell you. I have the counter story to that. We were, we were doing some training on Scrum, and uh, it was a group of crusty old DBAs, and we were talking about the ceremonies, and they're like, wait a minute, you're telling me I've got five more meetings every week, two hours every week on top of everything else? And I'm like, sorry, sorry, I didn't, didn't pitch that well. These are the only meetings you have. That's right. And he said, oh, oh, why didn't you say that first? Well, that's different. 
Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you both. We're at the end of the time box, as you said, Mark. Ryan, tell us a little bit about your passion projects. What do you got going on? Yeah, thanks, Andy. I'm going to start off with one that's really close to me, um, near and dear to my heart, Headstrong Project, um, which we started about eight years ago. A colleague of mine from third time First Marines, Zach Iskell. Started this organization, Headstrong. Uh, our mission is pretty simple, very hard to do, and that's provide immediate, cost-free, bureaucracy-free, world-class mental health care to any veteran that needs it. Our goal is to do that in all 50 states uh, within the next five years. We're well underway in 25, 30 markets. You go to our, Headstrong, our, our website, getheadstrong.org. Whether you need help yourself or uh, you want to contribute to the great cause, we've got uh, over an 80% uh, AFR rating, all the money that, uh, that we collect for the most part goes actually down to the operations and the clinicians, and it's a great scale of model. And uh, we've got about a thousand folks from treatment at any time um, and been going fast. So super proud of what we've been able to do there. The other is the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation, founded by Vietnam veterans uh, that uh, moved to New York. A lot of them went into the FBI. Again, great organization, super simple mission. Any Marine or federal law enforcement agency or federal law enforcement agent that loses their life on the line of duty, uh, we provide a $35,000 stipend to each one of their kids for education. Um, it's immediate goes straight to uh, where the guardians or parents are that uh, they're surviving for use in a, in a wide variety of ways. Super widely from a bureaucracy standpoint. And so we raised money for them. Um, and we've been able to give away tens of millions of dollars to help out those folks. So two great organizations, um, certainly both of them are worth uh, any dollar that somebody's gonna donate um, or the time. So thanks for letting me uh, put in the plug in. Sure, we'll make sure there's links in the show notes. Mark, any closing thoughts? Well, Ryan, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I would like to be the first to wish you a happy 246th birthday. Thanks, Mark. Same. <laughs> well, happy birthday to both of you, Ryan Sparks and my co-host, Mark Story. Thank you both for your time and your service to our country. Uh, for our listening audience, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating or a review or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. If your first time tuning in, why don't you subscribe to get the next episode automatically. If you want to join the discussion and share your stories about scaling leadership or good craft beer or both, jump on over to our Discord server. You can see agileuprising.com or the show notes for a link. And finally, support from listeners just like you. Help us cover our hosting and production costs. Uh, again, see the show notes for details on how you can become a patron. Until next time. This is the Agile Uprising Podcast, signing out. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.